time to put on the brakes and pull into Purple Car Park, your stop for book reviews, author interviews, and thoughts about the act of reading in our super-digital, data-driven world. Hosted by Miss Purple Car herself, Christine Cavalier. Today on Purple Car Park, I have with me journalist Oliver Berkman, the author of The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. You can find Mr. Berkman on Twitter as at Oliver Berkman and at his regular column at The Guardian about psychology and well-being entitled, This Column Will Save Your Life. You can also visit his blog and website at oliverberkman.com. Welcome, Oliver. Thanks very much indeed for, uh, for having me on. For happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking was described by another interviewee of mine, Daniel Pink, author of Drive, as a counter to, quote, a self-help tradition in which positive thinking too often takes the place of actual thinking. Mr. Pink goes on to say that you, Oliver, point, quote, our attention to several philosophies, deeper tradition, and does so with a light hand and a wry sense of humor. Why do Brits seem so amused by the American fascination with happiness? <laughs> it's a good question, uh, but it's also a slightly tricksy question because actually the Brits are fairly obsessed with this positive thinking stuff as well. I think we like to think that we aren't. And I certainly think that maybe this sort of national character, we are a little more downbeat and uh, in general, I think, hugely admiring of and uh, jealous of in all sorts of ways, uh, our American cousins, but also, you know, there's that kind of slight wryness, as you, as you point out, towards this kind of culture. What I tried to do, we can talk about this more, but what I tried to do in this book was not, I mean, maybe, after, maybe the first chapter is, is more of a sort of uh, demolition of, uh, of that kind of culture, but I really wanted to try to explore some alternatives after explaining why I think positive thinking doesn't work. I wanted to avoid that thing that I think of as very British, which is just to say, oh, you know, this doesn't work, so therefore happiness can't be achieved. I'm just going to be a, a, a curmudgeon and sort of uh, laugh about how terrible everything is. Um, <laughs> so I'm hoping that it's a sort of neither stereotypically American or British. <laughs> I realised that you were British once I saw that you wrote for The Guardian. <laughs> so I didn't actually find that in the book to be a overwhelming theme. I just really like their almost cynical view of how happy we are here, you know, quote unquote happy and how we really look towards positive thinking. And we have all these things in the culture about sports psychology and how to achieve goals and things of that nature. And it seems as though there is very many similar things between the cultures. What were some of the downsides of positive thinking that really annoyed you? Like what were the ones that most inspired you to write this book? Well, I had been writing, as you say, this column in The Guardian for some years that was meant to be a sort of, I hope, sceptical but not cynical take on, on self-help, self-help culture and this whole new f trend of, of happiness science in, in, in psychology, in you know, academic psychology as well. The thing that really annoyed me at a sort of abstract overview level was that all of the stuff I came across that didn't seem to work, that didn't, uh, that I found kind of irritating or that hadn't been backed up by by good research, seemed largely to have this thing in common, this, this idea of positive thinking. What I mean by that is particularly this idea that there's something about trying so hard to be happy that, that, um, that stops us or that gets in the way of, of doing so. So it's not just that the techniques don't work, it's that they have the opposite effect and that there is something about that struggle 
that that is just not a happy making uh, thing. And you see that manifested in lots and lots of different ways. So I think, as I say in the book, you know, visualizing the best case scenario, setting very ambitious goals, using self-help affirmations. There are many, many manifestations of that idea, some of them more mockable than, than others. But I actually think all of us, to some extent, maybe not all of us, most of us are seduced by this general idea, not necessarily by the most extreme versions of it, the big motivational seminars, but this general idea that, that the way to be happy and successful is to focus hard on, on happiness and success. It's just that basic focus that is really annoying. Obviously, it has specific versions that are more absurd than, than others, but that's the basic underlying problem, I think. Yeah, we won't mention, we won't name names exactly, but <laughs> I've definitely read some books that have a lot of shame underlying the message that if you cannot keep up your positive attitude, it's your fault. You know, if your life is not positive, it's because you are weak in mind, in willpower. Right. The good things will come to you if you think good things will come to you. And you know, there's a certain ring of truth to this. It's also a very simple way to look at the world, and those things are always so enticing, right? Simple rules. Right, and I mean, it, 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 I'm not saying it can never have any positive effect, that in a mild way, if you can do it gently, you know, choosing a, a brighter thought than a darker one may well be, in a short term, in a mild way, quite helpful. But, but it's, firstly, when it goes into overdrive, that it's a problem. And then it's secondly, as you point out, this responsibility idea that because you are using changing your thoughts to change your life, if you haven't changed your life or you or bad things happen, then you've been thinking in the wrong way uh, or you haven't thought positively enough, and that just turns into into one big guilt trip rather than uh, any kind of self help technique that's really worthy of the name. You frame the book by a personal journey of going to meet with some key figures. Right. How did you pinpoint which people you wanted to meet with and interview? Well, it's always a slightly um, trial and error process, I think, when you do a book like this, because you have to know a little bit in advance that the person you're going to see is going to be relevant to your thinking. But on the other hand, you have to not know for certain, otherwise you wouldn't be finding anything out on your journey. So I knew from the beginning that I would need to look closely at Stoicism, the ancient Greek and Roman philosophical tradition and Buddhism uh, because they both, it seems to me, embody ideas that are very much the opposite of, of positive thinking. They have very much to do with turning towards negative experiences and emotions. Tell us really uh, quickly who the Stoics are. The Stoics were, um, well, there are still people today and I meet one or two of them who, um, who live by today, but the Stoics date back to ancient Greece and Rome and they were a philosophical school that uh, emerged not long after the death of Aristotle, so it's really around the earliest days of what we know as, as philosophy today, including people who were some of the key philosophers, you know, who experienced themselves very awful life conditions, either being born into slavery. Seneca, who was actually a nobleman, forced to uh, commit ritual suicide. These are people who had a pretty terrible lives in, in various ways. And it sort of emerges from that, you know, a, a philosophy of how to deal with the distress that, emer that, that you'll feel when things go wrong uh, in life comes out of this situation where actually quite a lot did go very wrong. And their fundamental insight is that it's our beliefs about events rather than the events themselves that cause us distress. Although that sounds like a slightly sort of positive thinking thing to say, they would then say, I think, that 
it doesn't follow that you should then try and make your beliefs as upbeat as possible, but that you should bring them uh, into tune with what they thought of as rationality, reality. So there's a lot to be said for your emotional life in, in learning to have beliefs that are somehow proportionate to the way things are rather than disproportionate and thereby upsetting. And they do leave a little bit to be desired in terms of answers when it comes to what to do with your thoughts. And you went a different way and found an answer to that. Can you tell me more about how you answered the question about controlling your thoughts? Right. Well, this is sort of gets progressively deeper and deeper, I suppose, is maybe that's how I've organized the, the, the journey in the book. You know, the Stoics, first of all, say, well, hang on, it's your thoughts not events that are causing distress. The Buddhists say you can learn to resist the urge to try and manipulate those thoughts and just to be present with them instead. And then when you sort of plunge off the deep end into the work of Eckhart Tolle, which is obviously heavily influenced by Buddhism and it's New Age and it's all a big melting pot, he's really then starting from this notion that the, the, the self that you think of as doing all this thinking, that that's a problematic notion that we make all sorts of assumptions about the idea that that I am myself and the thoughts in my head are me I'm identified with them and thinking is is the default state of being uh, you know he suggests that actually you can take a vantage point that is not your thoughts in which you are the witness of those thoughts and then you know it gets very sort of um, it gets very mystical and, and the idea that maybe uh, individual humans are in some sense uh, an illusion. All these approaches, uh, the, the way in which they, they're all very different, thing, but the, the thing they have in common is this turning towards negativity. That's why I group these on label of the, the negative path to happiness in the book. And they all do this in one way or another by, yeah, by objectifying thoughts and emotions, by seeing them as something other than fully definitive of yourself. Uh, so the waves is a metaphor, the other classic one in, in modern day contemporary Buddhist teaching is, is weather, you know, that you see it as, you see your thoughts and feelings as clouds and uh, sun and rain uh, passing across the sky uh, and, and the mind is the, is the sky. You say in the book about how you, we could know quicker, control our breathing or think we have any control over it for long periods of time, then we can control our thoughts. Right. Well, that's just this idea that, you know, your body is a whole huge complex system of processes that you don't really have any control over, even if you imagine that you do. Okay, but what you're saying there is definitely something original in terms of your thoughts being physical processes. I think we're sort of talking along the boundary of a metaphor and, 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 and literalism. I, I mean, firstly, I think a lot of these ideas are actually really old, but they are new in some of them are definitely new in the contemporary psychological context. The, the part that I'm thinking of here is the, uh, the insight in early Buddhist psychology by which thinking is conceptualized as, as another sense. So that sounds come in through the ears and uh, sights come in through the eyes and uh, tastes come in through the tongue and thoughts are projected onto the screen of the mind. So it's, it's a very interesting to me way of thinking about thinking because we tend to assume that thinking is much more essential to us. The things we see are not us, obviously they're just, they're just data from the outside. But the idea of thoughts as well as being a kind of sense door does sort of fundamentally change the, the stance that you take towards them 
And, you know, as you may know, and as I encountered in, the, in searching the book, if you spend a few days at a silent meditation retreat watching your thoughts, you very swiftly realize that you don't have a lot of control over what is going on inside your mind, that you are as out of control in that regard as you are about the temperature in the meditation hall or the fact that you're hungry and would really like to really like for it to be dinner time, you know. Um, right. That's kind of liberating, I think, when you make that, re- when you have that realization. I feel like the book when I was reading through it, mm-hmm. begged the question of happiness and what it is. So right. in the beginning, you assumed a general knowledge of what happiness is. And we can all point to a motivational seminar. You start the book with a motivational seminar. Um, we, we all kind of know what you're talking about. But we get to the end of the book and find out that we don't actually know what happiness is. What happens and how did you come to a different definition at the end? I hope. I mean, that's definitely the, that's definitely a true account of my journey in writing this book. To start off, to start off with the assumption, in other words, that I was going to be exploring a different route to the same destination, and then to realize as a result of going on me that actually the destination is very much in in question as well. So I hope that this has the effect I wanted to have uh, on the reader of sort of pulling the rug out from underneath them. I think it's a placeholder word that we use. Uh, And I think uh, one thing I do say near the beginning of the book is is that a lot of what I'm looking at here, I think is applicable regardless of your view of it, of your view of what happiness is. So in other words, uh, where I talk about the benefits of, of pessimism in certain contexts, I think that is true whether your definition of happiness is a warm, loving family and some absorbing hobbies, or whether you think it is making $50 million. These problems with trying too hard to get to certain things affect both those kinds of goals. But then what I hope happens, because it happened to me in the course of researching it and reporting it, is really to is really that I reached the conclusion that there is no definition to this term. It is not a thing that it makes any sense to think consciously about trying to aim for. The kind of thing that I think you get if you were to embody all these philosophies that I that I talk about is a kind of authenticity, a kind of realism. The feeling, which is how I describe what I'd want to feel on my deathbed, you know, that I had been present for it all in life, that I had experienced the highs and the lows, uh, that I hadn't just experienced the highs and somehow managed to screen out the, the lows, which is, I think, what positive thinking and allied approaches try and ultimately will fail to do. So I don't really apologize for not being able to sum up happiness in a sentence. And I think actually in many ways, letting go of the need to do that is one of the effects that in my dreams this book would have on the the person reading it. Well, I think that it's timely because a lot of people are having second thoughts about the books that have come out in the last decade of positive thinking and corporations are going crazy for this stuff but the workers who go through the trainings and are sent to these motivational seminars something is going wrong and they smell a rat and right but they have no way of expressing this they have no way of saying wait a second let's step back and or else they'll be labeled a cynic companies that really could benefit so much from thinking about how things are wrong 
as well as how things could go right. And there's plenty of good evidence now that it, you know, it really helps to have a pessimist or two on your team, not a sort of cranky, obnoxious person who's just going to tell everyone else they suck, but uh, <laughs> but someone who whose natural bearing towards the world is to take account of those things that that could really go wrong in the future. That's a very useful mindset to have. Defensive pessimism that uh, Julie Norum talks about, the psychologist, and, and says that you know about a third of Americans use it instinctively. This is not about being terribly, terribly gloomy. This is about having a sense of the multiple different ways in which projects can turn out. And actually, you know, people then sometimes say, well, but what if you're depressed? You know, what about actual real depression in a, in a clinical sense and in a severe sense? Surely you don't mean that's good. And I say, well, no, of course I don't mean that's good. But I sure as hell mean that positive thinking is not a good response to that. You know, anyone who's had any experience of that knows that just being told to think happy thoughts is pretty much the very worst thing that, uh, that anyone could propose in that circumstance. Right. And I think that your book brings out balance because at the end of the day, we're still talking about getting to that happiness point. We're just talking about a different way to get to that happiness point. And the balance that is definitely needed in the boardroom, and I sit on a few boards of nonprofits myself, you can hear audible gasps when I play devil's advocate. <laughs> you know, and I have no judgment of the situation. I am in the Buddhist tradition, just looking at what is on the table, right? you know, in the moment, what do we have now? What are our resources now? What is going wrong right now? What's going correctly? And if I bring up anything but the greatest, wonderful, most positive achievements, the room goes silent. I don't find that that is the best way to make progress, right? Absolutely. And the, the weird part about it is that, that the really hostile response comes from a place of positive thinking. You know, if, if, if we could let go of this idea that we had to insist that everything was going to work out well all the time, then it wouldn't be a big downer to bring up something like that in a meeting. It would be it would be fine. The sort of allergic response that you get as if you, you know, the radioactive <laughs> yes. is, comes from building these walls of, of these mental walls according to which everything's got to go uh, one way. So, um, And you have some fantastic examples in the book, historical examples in the auto industry and others of how this can go deeply, deeply wrong. You talk about Barbara Ehrenreich and, and how she examines what happens to the economy uh, because of our delusions about progress and positive thinking and goal setting. And right. your examples are just very keen observations about how it can go wrong and how those own companies noticed that it went wrong and have changed their ways. How have your habits changed after this journey? Well, I'm I'm more okay with knowing exactly what's going to happen as a result of something that I something that is happening. Um, again, I don't want to overclaim, but I but yeah, it's it's a sort of um, uh, peaceful. It's yeah, it's more peaceful, and it's and it's easier to it's easier to actually do things and make changes to your life or, or or be okay with not making change in a, in a in a way much more successful in the long run because you're not so fixated on this idea of success i think i spent quite a few of my years as a sort of as a very young adult thinking that next week i was going to launch the exercise plan or the work plan or whatever it might be that was going to change everything forever and then it would sort it out and that i think is a sort of fresh start idea that is very deeply embedded in 
self-help culture. You, if you're already prone to that kind of thinking like I was, you shouldn't read most uh, self-help books. They, <laughs> they will take you down the exact wrong right. path. And actually, realizing that you're already in it, you can't, there's not going to be a fresh start. There's not going to be some big moment. You're already here now. And the point is to do, you know, if you should be going to the gym more, then just go to the gym. Don't like sit making a huge plan about how next week you're going to start the biggest uh, revolutionary exercise plan uh, known to humanity. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, you know what? I think being a Generation Xer, being raised in the wake of I'm okay, you're okay, yeah. and positive thinking, motivational culture from the 70s and 80s, we were kind of raised to think that there was this big moment coming down the pike for us that when the day we would be famous or the day that we would be rich or powerful or, you know, we we're still waiting on those days because we were told you can do anything. You know, <laughs> we were we were just infused with this idea that we will achieve a lot. Yeah. You know, against all odds. And so we're going to have a whole generation of people, apparently, like all famous, you know, and I think that is one of the reasons why my generation drives the social media scene, because it's a mini form of celebrity. And we are expecting that we were told that we were promised that. And yeah. we're getting into our midlife now and we're looking around and going, is this it? Is this all there is? And some of us run to more and more motivational seminars and we keep trying to exercise that willpower muscle. It just leads us to a little bit more misery every day. Your book says, you know what, it might be okay to just, as you quote, meander with purpose around your life and that's how most people in the history of the world have gotten through their lives you can be quite happy that way and achieve more if you let it go if if you accept things as they come and live more in the moment uh yeah absolutely i mean i think that the paradox of it really is that it's um the, the, a better way to achieve some of that kind of extraordinary success to sort of to be okay with the idea that things are ordinary most of the time and that you might have quite an ordinary life, I'm sure is also a better way to be able to do a few extraordinary things. So it sort of all goes in the same direction. I think what you say about everyone expecting to be super famous is very um, right on. It's um, We have quite a large difficulty with uh, the idea that we might in certain ways not be special. <laughs> yeah, we might be obscure. We, we might have a normal, you know, average life. It's taboo um, for any of us to accept a limitation of one of our children, say. Right, right. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? It's a hard, hard line to walk because you do want in yourself or your children the idea that, that they can and should reach for things that they might otherwise be afraid to reach for. But it is, um, I think, the two things that the traditional positivity culture ideas around this miss are firstly, you know, that some things actually are not possible. There's no point pretending that, that, they, that they are. But secondly, that for those many things that are possible, take a lot of effort, just that the experience of failure is going to be a big part of, of, of getting there. Uh, or of trying to get there. The positive thinking movement does not adequately address that failure and what to do when it comes, because it will come. One of the things that is coming to my mind right now in the suburbs is uh, the athletic prowess of children and the hopes of scholarship and glory 
of the parents for these children. The idea here is not realistic for most of these children, but their lives seem to get very difficult when that scholarship isn't offered. Right. The parents are under the same illusion, a more tempered idea of just looking at the statistics. I think it does add into their decision-making process about what they're going to spend their time on. Uh, Yeah, I think, I mean, the only thing that I'd want to qualify that with, lest anyone listening think we were just being utterly negativist, is that actually you're completely right, I think, but that mindset is also the right way to become one of those occasional superstars. So it's actually, you know, there's quite a bit of interesting work about how people who are encouraged to think of themselves in sports as as naturals then lose the motivation to realize their potential because they think they don't need to push up against their limits. They think it's just in them. And so actually, you know, being okay with the possibility of failure is certainly important if you are going to be one of the people who statistically is rather likely not to get those scholarships and those, those top places. But it's also the best way to maximize your chances of getting to those top places. So it's kind of win-win. But, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this difference between talent and hard work. His concept of 10,000 hours. The concept of talent, I think, really grows from the motivational and positive thinking realm. If you really look at that narrative of talent in our biggest sports stars, you dig down a little more deeply and you'll see the 20,000 to 50,000 hours they spent. Sure, a little bit of talent might have gotten their interest peaked, but really what's happening is that some people work harder than others. That message is just not popular. Right. I I don't think that contradicts what I was saying because I I find myself agreeing with it, but um, I think... um... I'm saying that we have to watch that talent narrative. Absolutely. I mean, firstly, f- firstly, you know, absolutely, it's a question of effort. And, and we also have to be aware, that I think, you know, depending on whether it's nature or nurture, there are some people who are really just not in a position to put in as much effort as others. And I think we need to be careful about condemning them as having a moral failing because they're not, they don't have a personality that enables them to apply themselves with quite so much dedication. The other point I think that's worth saying is that, you know, even if you do have that ability to apply yourself and that motivation to apply yourself, you're going to be far better equipped to actually put that work in. If you understand encounters with failure are, um, Part of the process, they're the, they're the proof that you're pushing yourself, basically, rather than if you set these incredibly rigid, high standards that I think positive thinking greatly encourages. And then, you know, when you run up against them at first, you just get incredibly motivated and frustrated. Yeah, there are some good lessons out there, good books that talk about how corporations should embrace failure. And you do talk about a really interesting museum in the book. I won't reveal that. I won't spoil it for anybody, but they have to read the book to see it. And it's it's just so interesting and actually quite a moneymaker. <laughs> um, yeah, well, no, thank you for drawing attention to it, though. Yes, I, I urge people to read the book. I <laughs> urge people to read that, especially my listeners, many of them who work in marketing and social media and outreach. There's a lot in this book about what is going on in corporations when they make decisions about products and and things. And there's a lot of ways that boardrooms and even stockholders can think about things in a bigger picture and take the good with the bad. It's a very 
timely and interesting journey that you have shared with us. And I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Oliver, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And I'm, I'm really grateful for your interest in your excellent and challenging uh, questions. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to check out the book, go to www.oliverberkman.com. It's The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking by Oliver Berkman. Thank you so much, Oliver. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Purple Car Park theme music and announcements provided by The Matthew Show, critically acclaimed original and independent music. Please check it out at TheMatthewShow.com. The doors stay open, but the seats stay filled. The lid is childproof, but the people stay filled. The price has gone up for the prison yet to build. The doors are wide open, but the church stays filled.